It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Let's Talk Animals with your host, Dr. John Hunt, is up next. Good morning, this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. This is our once a month live program, 10 o'clock on Thursday on WERU 89.9 in Orland. And uh, our our topics are varied. Uh, Today's topic is a rather serious one. Uh, We're gonna talk about pet abuse. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because the abuse of pets is actually connected with abuse of children and battered women. It's all combined. So we're not just going to talk about um, pets per se, but pets do become uh, like a canary in the gold in the in the uh, coal mines in that it can be an early sign of, of troubles at home. And I have two very special guests today, uh, Dorothy Martell and Leslie Linder. And they are from the Next Step Domestic Violence Project in Ellsworth, uh, here to share an hour with me. Now, it's just, again, um, they are uh, very knowledgeable in abuse in general. So we are going to be not just talking about pets per se, but we're going to try to focus on pets when it's uh, necessary. So good morning, Leslie. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thank you for having us. Good morning, Dorothy. How are you? Good morning. Thank you for having us. Well, it's, I say, a pleasure having you here. Um, I'm hoping this uh, hour will uh, give some people some insight as to what's going on around them. And maybe maybe they may identify something in their own lives, which is very important. But first, I want Dorothy and Leslie to kind of tell tell the listeners how you got here from there. So, Leslie. How we got here from there. Do you mean how we learned? How did you get education or your jobs? How did you get to... Why, how did you get to Next Step? Okay. Well, I started talking, so I'll go. Um, I f- grew up locally, and I studied theology, and I thought I would become a minister. And I had some family violence in my own background, so that was always something that I kept in my head and wanted to learn things about. And it was kind of a coincidence around the time I decided not to pursue parish ministry. The next step was advertising for a community response person who would do education to places including the faith community. And um, that struck a chord with me. And that was in 2001, and I've been there ever since. So what's her response? You said he he had... What, what is that? I'm not sure what what's, that is. What's community response? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's our community education program. So it's we do offer free programming to any business or social organization, faith organization, anyone who would like to learn more about domestic violence. Uh, it's usually about how to keep employees safe if they've had some domestic violence, follow someone to the workplace, or a perpetrator has, you know, misused resources in the workplace and kind of... Okay thrown things into chaos a bit. So, so you've been there since 2001? Yes. Dorothy, how did you get here from there? My, my route was a little more circuitous. Um, I started working in the domestic violence field about 20 years ago at the coalition level. So there's a, a coalition of projects like ours around the state. Um, we call them domestic violence resource centers. Um, I worked 
so I worked for a coalition. I worked for our sister project in the Bangor area. Um, and I came to Next Step uh, about two years ago as the executive director. Um, the main thing for me is the connections between all kinds of social justice and people's right and animals' rights to be safe and to be well-treated. So um, I feel like my whole career has been pushing me in this direction. And are these uh, organizations like the Next Step, are they state? Federal, county funded. How are they funded? Um, donations. <laughs> um, all of all of the above. Um, yeah. We get uh, a large percentage of our funding is federal. Um, a little bit is state, um, but we rely on local community donations uh, for really anything that isn't proscribed. So anything we want to do that um, doesn't have a lot of restrictions. You know, you must do this with this money comes from our community. And we're really fortunate to have a gener- generous community. We also, we're based in uh, Hancock and Washington counties, and both counties do support us as well. Do you have an office in, in Washington? We do. We have a uh, resource center in Machias and an outreach office in Callis, as well as our um, administrative offices and resource center in Ellsworth. Very good. I want to remind my listeners that this is live this month. Uh, and if you wish to call to ask a question or chime in on our topic, please call 469 0500. 469 0500. This is uh, Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. Dr. John Hunt, your host. And we'll start to get into our uh, topic. Um, I think the first thing is just kind of define uh, what abuse is and maybe go into some kind of some of the forms of abuse. I think that's uh, some people hear abuse and they have different thoughts on it. As a veterinarian, um, I think I saw a lot of animals come in that were abused. I thought, however, uh, I would couldn't do anything about it because I had no proof. I just suspected. So as a, as a professional in the pet field, I was in kind of a sticky Mm-hmm. Position nowadays, they're kind of encouraging us to report anything that looks kind of out of out of touch. Uh, so, but what what? So, what is it? What is abuse? I mean, what mm-hmm. is it, and uh, what kind of forms? Okay, I have I have a spiel ready here. Good. We uh, <laughs> um, we deal with a very specific kind of abuse, which is. Um, domestic violence or intimate partner violence. So um, it's a very dangerous form of interpersonal violence uh, everywhere, whether it's an urban area or a rural area. Um, So the hallmarks of this kind of violence are power and control is really what it's about. And it can take the form of physical violence. It can take the form of emotional violence. It can take advantage of Uh, biases in the community to leverage someone. You know, you can take advantage of someone younger than you. You can take advantage of someone who also experiences racism. You can take advantage of someone who's an immigrant. Um, A power and control type of dynamic, it's not, um, we don't go with a disease model. It's more of a culture model that unfortunately folks can pick up from home or from their community 
um, from their peers and just learn that it's it's effective to do relationships in this way and it's a really toxic behavior that tends to carry from relationship to relationship um, with a perpetrator of, of this kind of violence, a controlling person is really what they are, um, doing it again and again in all sorts of different ways um, that they may be aware of or not. So when you think about pets, they're a part of the family system. And so everybody in the family system gets controlled by a controlling person. And there are whole books written on this topic that it's the, you know, it's the adult partner who's being controlled. It's also the children. It's also grandparents, cousins, whoever. It's also pets. Um, it's whoever, whoever falls within the radius that needs to be controlled. So um, it's important to know that it might look like black eyes or the kind of stuff you see on TV, but often it doesn't have to because the control can be at such a high state that that a controlling person doesn't have to to hit to be in control. So when we teach with the power and control wheel, we show that um, a physical assault or a sexual assault may occur sporadically, and that's to show everybody in the family that they mean business, and it can quiet down. So you might hear someone that was beaten five or ten years ago and is still so terrified and is still completely controlled. And it's important to know that it's the control you're looking for and not acts of physical violence. But um, controlling... So, mm -hmm. so in between the violent act, there's mm -hmm. psychological control, or is it like intermittent reinforcement? Yeah, You I get think reinforced you once in a while irregularly, so you don't know. You could definitely call it intermittent enforcement, but it also, you can start to look for the patterns as um, when victims in the home challenge the perpetrator, when they try and set a boundary, when they try to leave, you know, when they even take some steps to try and leave, like start to go back to school or open a second bank account or do something, um, that can trigger one of those incidents to okay. put them back in their place, so to speak. So that's why we train that leaving has to be done thoughtfully, and it's very, very important not for folks to just say, I wouldn't put up with that, just leave, because it's a very dangerous process that um, is, is possible. I don't want it to sound hopeless, but it has to be planful, and that's what we do. That's why we call what we do safety planning on the hotlines and in education programs, and that's the core of domestic violence advocacy. It's not a therapeutic model, but it's a safety planning and of course, the pets in the household have to be part of the strategy. They're very the much formula. part of the strategy. Do you find uh, someone uh, that's controlling a family? Um, have you found that the pet, because they're the easiest to control because they're defenseless, do you find it um, typical that they're the first to get controlled, or do they, or do some abusers skip skip pets? Or it's an interesting question because our role as pet owners is to have control. I mean, some, some of the control we have over pets is natural and necessary and, and part of a training process. It's when it goes beyond what is necessary to keep the animal safe, to, to, to keep the dog or the cat or the fish, um, you know, confined in a way that's safe, um, and, it, and it goes beyond that. And a hallmark of the kind of abuse Leslie described is a sense that one has a right to control and to have power over another, whether it's a person or an animal. So um, if someone is telling, say, a dog, you know, to 
to sit to stay to lie down and that's appropriate that's not abuse if they're doing it to humiliate the dog to um create a lesson for the rest of the family that i can see i could do that to you then it starts to range over into abuse so it, it's we describe it in a power and control way but it looks a little bit different with people than it does with animals well i think what you're uh, using different words in terms of the pet the animal world um the typical pet owner has responsibility exactly. to care for the animal. It's not a uh, it's not a control thing. Uh, you are now responsible for another living thing. Because of that, you need because they can't get their own water and food and a place to to sleep. You provide that, and that's what domestication is. You're providing that, and the pet provides either love or herding the cattle or whatever function it has to be. So I think that's um, that's the, the standard. Uh, formula for pet owners and then it goes beyond that Uh, for instance um, can I just add something that too is is to put it in the to put it back through the lens of a controlling person they're like what can I do without incurring consequences how far do I have to push this and what can I do and animals are not protected to the same extent that human family members are it's much easier to kill an animal and either never have anyone know if the family's afraid to say anything or say well I'm allowed to euthanize my animal at home and that's what I did and who's going to prove otherwise you see what I mean is there are different standards and it's um unfortunately in the world that we live in we have to kind of see some things this is how (laughs) certain people in our culture think and it's very toxic for them as well as for the people and animals in their lives but it's i can get away with this so i can kill the dog and then they'll listen to me it's interesting you made made that point because in the, the state statutes of cruelty to animals uh that is considered abuse if you destroy an animal that's not if the euthanasia is not consistent with with the practice of veterinary medicine, it's not humane, not quick. Sure. So they may think they're not uh, they can get away with it, but they mm-hmm. actually have broken the law. So so mm-hmm. the, the state has tried to cover that to protect our our animals. Yeah, and of course there are more subtle ways of doing that. If instead of euthanizing an animal, you want to get back at a partner or you want to control a partner and give the animal away, mm-hmm. um, or lose the animal. Um, so now you're controlling the person in a way that is detrimental to the pet as well. And that happens probably, we probably see more of that than we see physical abuse of the animals. We're not generally laying our eyes on the animals as we are on the people, but we hear a lot more about, he gave my dog away, he um, said I could leave and I could take my stuff, but I can't have the I can't have our cat. Um, And we work with a lot of people who will stay in situations that are dangerous to themselves, either to protect uh, pets and or children, um, or because they can't bear to live without their pets. So there's a lot of subtle forms of abuse that might not look like animal abuse in itself, but that tell you that this person will take all sorts of measures against anyone in the household. Have you seen a, a situation where the uh, the abuser is abusing the person, they're using the animal as a pawn for controlling the person, however, the, do- the dog or cat is not harmed? Not, is that possible? Yeah, not physically yeah, harmed, yes. Yeah, I mean, taking, taking good care of the dog, taking yeah. good care of the mm-hmm. cat, but, he's, but the cat's staying here mm-hmm. and you have to go. So the cat's the control 
but he he or she isn't harming the animal. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah, there's no rules. There's just like tendencies. There's tactics and tendencies. Yeah. And I've also known because you have to also know that controlling people split everybody else around them against each other. It's it's a way to control, you know, horizontal hostility the same way that, you know, powerful people control less powerful people by pitting them against each other. Um, Divide and conquer. Yeah, and so they'll have favorite pets and not favorite pets, or, you know, and favorite children and not favorite children. And everybody in the household has a different experience, and it keeps everybody not trusting each other and not trusting their own internal feedback. So um, I, I remember one case where the woman... The, if I can give one example that I think I'll Please. will highlight, Please. he tethered her cat to the ceiling with a with a leash, so the cat just barely had enough room to breathe. And he did this regularly, and he would tell her, "I'm going out, don't touch the cat." And she she would call and just be freaking out, understandably, because she didn't want she wanted to let her cat loose, but she didn't dare because all the stuff had happened that we've discussed, and she was terrified to challenge him on anything and i remember once i was speaking to her and she finally gave the sigh of relief she was like oh she slipped out of the collar she's okay he'll know she slipped out of the collar and i didn't do it so it's okay and one of those days i think that day i was talking to her he was gone because he was taking his dog to the vet (laughs) okay so the the whole playing favorites that's just one example and i won't burden your listeners with all of them but anything with pets (laughs) would be any examples you can think of? Just oh, there are a share. lot, but some of them are very hard to hear. Some of them do involve horrible injury of animals. Some of them are are more the the what if is like, well, yeah, you've been gone three days. Your dog's getting awful hungry, and they don't know whether it's true or not. For all they know, the dog could be fine or not. And hmm. animals have died in those circumstances. Um, I remember one cocker spaniel, and it was the child's particular pet, was tethered outside. And when the family came home to get him or her, I can't remember that part, was infested with maggots and dehydrated and died. Um, And there are many, many examples like that. So there's just enough. This is the same with the interpersonal violence. The controlling people tend to back it up and really be violent enough to show everybody that they know they will do it but it's it's done usually in the home yes because again they know how to avoid consequence so they're targeting people who have loyalty to them have love for them or otherwise don't feel they'll be believed if they speak about this person in a certain way um in in maine um we have one of the lowest homicide rates in the country but consistently a very high rate of those homicides are family or right. intimate partner, so you understand it's um, you're almost in more danger <laughs> from the people you care about, and that's right. a very sad thing that we try and challenge with community education and culture change. And you spoke at the beginning about the canary in the coal mine, and um, law enforcement officers now more and more, if they see a, an abused animal and they look at an animal and know that it's been abused, will look to see what else is going on in the home. So there is an awareness that if something abusive is happening to an animal, there's probably more going on. But they need to, uh, and I think this training is, is important, same with veterinarians, uh, there's uh, there's neglect, which is passive abuse, yes. and that could be just ignorance. 
they just don't know. They they keep the dog out um, outside, and there's no shade, and they don't they don't they think there's enough water, and that could be an innocent thing, or it could be very deliberate because then you get the the gross, willful, cruel, malicious neglect mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, so it's hard for animal control officers and police and veterinarians and people that, that you're you know you're getting phone calls. You know, my dog is out in the back as part of their scenario of of their mm-hmm. home life. So you have to discern, is this a, a passive neglect from ignorance or is this a malicious? Is, that's, right. that's, tough. that's a tough mm-hmm. thing to prove. And we do victim-centered or survivor-centered advocacy for exactly that reason because we our, our model all the way back into the 60s and 70s is none of us know this particular offender as well as the people <laughs> who are actually experiencing their tactics and their personality and their tendencies and what they've done before and what they haven't done before. So that's why we're always asking the, the people who are working with us first, what do you think is going to happen? And they don't always know, and they can't predict 100%, but we take the lead from them on that. And, so so, so mm-hmm. the person that's calling you, you ask, yeah. what do you think is going to happen next? That's one thing we could ask them and often do, um, especially if they're involved with other systems and we're trying to plan for their safety and say law enforcement has a particular idea they should do, um, like get a protection order, and their social worker has a particular idea they should do, like um, get the grandmother to supervise visits for the controlling person and so then we would go back and be like how do you think that will work it might i'm not saying it won't but will it has has this person violated court orders in the past or not are they afraid of those kind of consequences or not and the victim knows that stuff all of us coming to the table don't necessarily know and will will grandma challenge this person or is grandma scared too or intimidated you know there's all those things, so we call that a, a victim-centered approach. Okay. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had a reverse uh, a, abuser in that they call you as the victim? Oh, yes. <laughs> and then they pretend like they're the victim. and, mm-hmm. um, and Yeah, that's a tactic. Re- yeah, get there first. And, again, it's... Can you, can you discern that, that... You want to take that? We ask, we ask people a lot of questions, and um, when we get those calls where it's someone who is describing themselves as a victim but is not, usually they give themselves away quite blatantly on questioning because they have such a sense of entitlement of how they can treat other people or other vulnerable creatures that they don't know to hold back. And some of what they describe is blatant abuse. Like once I was in court and heard a man who was, uh, you know, it was a protection order hearing against him. And he stood in front of the judge and said, well, yeah, I hit her, but she kept nagging me. And, and so we might get a call where someone will say, I'm a victim. Um, my partner is verbally abusive. He or she won't let up. And then so we might ask a question like, well, what happened then? And what did you do? And we're looking for safety for that person and they'll say well then i you know then i hit her <laughs> so and that's he, so gives, that's he shows pre- his cards pretty, it's a pretty good sign and you know of course we're not we're not we can't read minds and, and it's not foolproof but you would be surprised at how often that sense of entitlement to treat people however you want comes through and i've seen actually i've seen this in in pets as well mm-hmm. they'll come in and say you know my my dog trying 
tried to bite me and has a you know broken leg mm-hmm. well is probably trying to bite him because he's trying to give mm-hmm. him give him broken leg yeah. but you don't know that's the problem you don't know and it sounds like you know from your focus you're you're looking at ways that you can intervene um and what do you report and what do you not report because you're working with uh, victims who can't speak for themselves. Right. We, ha- we, we almost have the, the person as an intermediary on behalf of the pet, so we can help the person speak on behalf of their pet. Um, we can help them decide whether they have animal abuse that's reportable. Um, we can help them decide how to safely do that. So it is a little bit different. Do you, um, do you tend to or can you, or try not to, profile people, the abuser? In other words, just by the way they, someone talks about them, do you, or do you try to not do that so you don't want to make a mistake? I hope that we take every single case on its merits because although we can describe abuse and we can describe tactics, it really is about the experience of the person who's being victimized. And this came home to me really in a big way recently talking to people from other cultures. What, a, what I as an American woman consider emotional abuse might in another culture be considered the way men are supposed to treat women. Now, if that spills over into violence, I, I frankly don't, don't care. I, I, it is my firm belief and, and I think everybody who does abuse-related work, that no one has a right to physically harm someone. But there's some gray area in other places, and so we have to work from where the person who's coming to us is coming from, rather than profiling. Um, I would say that one thing that abusers have in common is that sense of a right to have power over. But beyond that, it's probably not a good idea to profile. What we tend to do is show folks the power and control wheel. I don't know if you've seen that, but no. it's it's a wheel, and it shows all these different tactics of power and control, like emotional, emotional abuse, um, intimidation by breaking things, throwing things, um, threatening to take custody of children, threatening to harm pets, controlling transportation, controlling the phone, controlling the finances, and all these things are underneath the rim of the wheel that kind of looks like a bike tire because it has these spokes with sections of those different kinds of abuse, but on the rim is the physical and sexual assault because that's the punctuation marks in this daily grind of other kinds of controlling behavior. So um, like Dorothy was saying, what we would be most likely to do that might seem like kind of profiling, it's still victim-centered to show them this and how much of this are you living with. And it kind of educates them at the same time. And they're like, oh my goodness, I'm living with all of this. And that wheel was developed by victims of domestic violence or survivors of domestic violence um, with a very early group of advocates. So it's created by survivors. And it's a tool that we use, law enforcement use. But you did mention things like animal bites. And there are things that law enforcement or child welfare or vets can look for. And frequent animal bites um, is is a, a red flag of family violence because why is this animal constantly right. defending itself or defending others? So that is one of those markers. And we give um, especially... Um, 
social workers, like um, child welfare workers, these tools to go and ask family members, including young children, about their pets. Do they worry about their pets? How many pets have they had? What happened to all those pets? Where are they now? Do they have, you know, who takes care of the pets? Do they have concerns? And there are all these ways because the kids love to talk about their pets. And by asking them those types of, or the adults, asking them those type of questions, you can start to get the family dynamic um, because the way the animals are being treated is part of that whole organic. So that's uh, something for the listeners to remember if they're in a situation that they know somebody or a family, another family, uh, you know, talk about how the pets are doing and, you know, why, mm-hmm. you know, why is it so thin or, you know, mm-hmm. would, how do you do you walk it? Do, does it give you any problems? Things that, That's yeah. very good. That's a good end. Because yeah. like might, I say, people love to talk about animals. Yeah, and it might be that there's family. I think it's more, you can assume it's something else, but you always have in your mind. And I have to just not, I have to be aware that this could be domestic violence. And I have to be careful not to put people on the defensive or blame them for what's happening until I get a little information. And, um, you know, you're just always, I think that's the way we always approach it is like, you never want to assume it's not there, but you don't just go in assuming it's there. So you ask people yes. and be observant. Yeah. This is uh, WERU 89.9 in Orland, Maine. I am Dr. John Hunt, the host of Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. We're talking about animal abuse and abuse in general because animal abuse is, is connected with child abuse and general family abuse. And uh, with me, I have Leslie and Dorothy who are from the Next Step Domestic Violence Project in Ellsworth. Uh, so they deal with um, families and um, that do have pets. Uh, again, the, the, our topic today is, is a serious one. It's not just the pets, but pets play a role in. It's part of the puzzle. We can't we can't ignore the animals, and actually, actually, you can use the care of animals to um, uh, to kind of get a, an idea of of what's going on in the family. Uh, so, there is a connection with child abuse and animal abuse. Correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have one statistic here that I've um, that the National Humane Society flagged when they did a campaign called the First Strike Campaign a few years ago, and they rolled out a lot of material about this specifically. And they were, were using this statistic from 1983 um, that there's an 88% correlation between child abuse and pet abuse in the same homes. Um, and I, I don't find that that's reduced in my experience, you know, just anecdotally. I haven't done an uh, empirical study, but I happen to have the job for the past 10 years of working with child welfare um, as a liaison for the next step. So I do engage in a lot of child abuse investigations, and there's definitely a very strong link. And that's what another um, big community education curriculum was called the linkage project because it was trying to show all these types of interpersonal violence are inextricably linked. You can't you can't deal with one without dealing with the other because you'll keep doing ineffectual responses if you leave part of the family out of the equation. There are going to be folks who are not going to leave their abuser if they can't take their horse. I mean, right. not right. all just dogs and cats. Right. And one of the other tactics of controlling people it can be to, I've seen a couple of different ways many times, either they 
take the animal to the vet and they have the record of ownership, so they threaten to keep the animal, you know, and their family believes them, or they refuse to let the animals have care. And so then you're trying to leave and you're thinking, I've got three cats, I've got two dogs, they've never been to the vet, you know, how am I going to take them out of here without doing thousands of dollars of vet care? They're not spayed or neutered. Um, They might be skittish or aggressive because of seeing or experiencing violence. So it's difficult for folks to leave if they're worried about their animals. Once again, we're talking live uh, at uh, Let's Talk Animals. You can call in at 469-0500 if you have a question or comment about uh, uh, animal abuse. Uh, Did you, um, Leslie or Dorothy, uh, can you correlate a certain kind of animal abuse with a certain kind of child abuse? Is Is it that narrow or is it really broad? Certain kinds of abuse... Did you you could say okay this dog was abused a certain way, and did you see a certain kind of child abuse connected to it? Are they are they very specific? I think there's one thing I could say about that. The first answer would be, I think it's all very broad, and part of the abuser's power is to be unpredictable, okay. even with the people who know them well. I mean they know they know what's happened before, they know what they think might happen again, but nobody can predict, and that's kind of deliberate. But um, there are kind of signs of high high risk that there could be a homicide or a really, really serious assault. And so when you're looking at people who are, have had, if you're looking at controlling people who have had things like serious suicide attempts, um, they've practiced really high risk things like threatening with a weapon, you know, that could kill someone even unintentionally, driving recklessly. And um, willingness to commit violence in public where they're seen by everyone because they don't show care about consequences. Those are some of these lethality indicators. So I don't know if you want Probably for for animals as well as for people. Um, I'm not, what you're describing is an interesting question that probably would require university level research Mm -hmm. and it's not something that I've come across. And it, it makes sense, though, because each family is unique. Mm-hmm. They each have their own relationship with their pets. Because even in normal circumstances, everyone has a certain relationship with their pet. Right. Some are utilitarian, some is guard dog, some is uh, helping uh, an elderly person. So the abuse would have to be targeted to that particular pet with the, with relationship with the family. Mm-hmm. And the, it's, always, it's always deliberate. You can... Violence can look out of control and impulsive, but often if you speak with survivors about it, it's not quite that way. Um, For instance, first they'll come in saying the whole living room was wrecked, but if you talk to them a little bit, it was their stuff that was wrecked. You know what I mean? Even in this violent explosive incident, or if an animal is shot or an animal is thrown down the stairs, it's the victim's animal. It's not the preferential animal or an animal, you know, it's ah, okay. it's often, or if there's child abuse, sometimes a stepchild or, you know, another child like that is more targeted. There's no, there's no specific pattern across the board. It's this individual will tend to pick favorites, play, again, as we said before, play family members against each other. Um, I did have a statistic that... Um, from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence that 71% of pet-owning women who went to domestic violence shelters, so they were at high risk if they would leave their home and go to a shelter, uh, reported that the the controlling person had 
uh, killed or threatened or badly hurt pets. So that's 71% of the women surveyed who were in the shelter during the study. And 32% of those same women reported their children had hurt or killed animals. And I think you do already know the link between what we call serial killers and killing animals. Jeffrey Dahmer, all those guys, Son of Sam, they all had, one had, I was trying to look for in this this article, I was trying to read, one, one was, I think it was Son of Sam, witnessed his grandfather chopping off heads of cats or something like that. So he didn't even do it. He just witnessed it, which is another question yeah. I want to bring up. But all of them had uh, animal abuse in their in yeah. their past. We call it experiencing. We've moved even while I've worked here. We It used to be talked about as, has the child been hit or have they just witnessed, quote unquote, as if that wasn't as bad. But now we talk about it as they're experiencing it, whether they've seen it or not, because they're in the house and they, they feel... They feel the ebbs and flows. They see the damage. They can sense it because children, as we all know, are very intuitive <laughs> about reading the adults around them and everything. And um, and they act out. If they're not verbal, they act out in other ways. I remember working on a case where a toddler had killed a dog, you know, a puppy by sitting on it. Just the lack of empathy, you know, the lack already of any feedback about that's hurting somebody well, that's else. What they're, they're, mm-hmm. That's what they're seeing, right? Yeah, and it's and animals are easier to practice on, and in the research around serial killers, it's referred to as practicing. Wow. And I think to some degree, even in a family situation, well, with a with a child, well, I might not be able to get back at my brother or sister, but I can kick the dog. So it's sad, but it becomes normalized if that's what you're seeing. Right. Um, whenever I talk about child abuse and animal abuse, I always feel like I need to say um, our child abuse laws in the United States actually come after the development of animal abuse laws. And the, and the child abuse code is based on the animal welfare laws, not vice versa. Oh, so we did good. recognize that animals were abused pretty early on, and it took longer to recognize that children were being abused. And one of the common factors in the way people without empathy think about children and animals is as property. And if you're my property, I can do whatever that's I want exactly, to That's exactly I was just going to say that. That's mm-hmm. why it was so slow mm-hmm. coming, because I can do whatever I want with my dog, mm-hmm. except the state has said so you can't do anything, but it is a property. Have you heard the um, a situation where a child is being abused well, the, the the pet is being abused, and probably the child is too. And the child killed the animal to protect the animal because he saw the animals being abused repeatedly, and he couldn't stand he or she mm. couldn't stand the suffering. I, I read someplace that that can be another way of children. It's just like it's all it's just upside down. Sure, sure. I mean, I haven't experienced that exact case, but it makes perfect sense to me. I mean, there's there's many different ways this could go. They're children and they're trying to figure some really complicated stuff out without any So the children's behavior is, is seems like it's um very confusing. I mean, how do you how do you deal with that? I mean, children, Our, do children call you? Um or? we really work with the adult as the as the primary person, um, we're we're not trained and qualified to work with children in a in a clinical sense. Um, if we heard about things like that, we would work closely with child welfare, and that's Leslie's position. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, and again, what I'm doing with them is more consultation about domestic violence because um, the caseworkers are well-trained in their sort of law. You know, they have a tremendous responsibility to protect children and potentially interrupt parental rights, you know, so they put a lot of their training and focus on that. And it was decided a while ago, fortunately, that we have a collaboration. So there's somebody in the district, which in our case is Hancock and Washington County, that helps them think about the domestic violence part so they don't have to do all that by themselves, the caseworkers. So in, in consultation with them, I help try and figure out how to help the whole family, including the children. Um, I do direct service, again, mostly with adults. Um, you know, it's child so welfare is the appropriate call because they can hook children up with therapeutic foster homes or clinicians or whatever they need, you know. So the child welfare department will, will intervene. Oh, yeah. And you step back? Or you uh, collaborate? I mean, that's... I would, I would call it collaboration. Because it's not solving the problem. You're just taking... You're removing the child from the situation, but it's not well, solving Well, not, nec- not necessarily. I mean, the child welfare system um, has a lot of mechanisms that could be working with the non-offending parent to ch- keep the child safe um, if they can see that a parent is breaking the law. They can take legal action. Um but we can't, nobody can be all things to all people, so we do have to collaborate. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't investigate. Like, right. like Dorothy was saying, you know, the, controlling people reveal themselves through their entitlement and their way of seeing the world as everybody, and it's my property and my tool. Um, the child welfare folks are investigators, and actually very few of those cases our removals, some of them are, but often they're the ones equipped to go in there and say, "Whoa, we have to look at what's going on with the children," and and um, either ask for or potentially court order the parents to take the children to certain services. So, so that is the avenue in Maine where we're all. That's why we're all called mandated reporters of child abuse. Those are the people who will look and say, "No, I went around and I investigated, and then there isn't actually." severe abuse it was you know there's no bad faith report they want everybody to report but um who do you call uh to help so you had the children's uh the children have a, a department with pets do you call the police or do you call your animal control officer in that community or yeah. the or this or the animal welfare the state animal welfare who is it that you Contact. It would it would depend on the severity um, as well as where. I would say that you know if you saw if I saw an animal being severely abused, and I thought that animal was in immediate danger, I would probably call the police. Um, if I but we mostly hear about these things secondhand, so it's very difficult for us to intervene directly on the pet's behalf because it's hearsay. So somebody calls us and says, this is going on in my home. So what we would preferably do is say, what you're describing sounds really dangerous. Have you called the police? Is it safe for you to call the police or is that going to make it worse? Um, if they say, I can't, would you would you do it? We would work, on, work with them on a way to do it safely. If I lived in a very small town and I, you know, the animal control officer was up the street, I'd probably call that person and say, I think something's going on in that house. Can you go take a look? So I think it you have to have a sense of your own community as well as of the severity of the case. It would be nice if there was just one answer for every case, but 
but there probably isn't. Yeah, there never is. <laughs> yeah. So listeners out there that, that see animals being treated, with, see the problem is they may think it's, right. it's abuse and it isn't because our definitions of that. Uh, so the message here is think about calling the uh, animal control officer. Police, if it's a really drastic, violent thing. Or, you know, or if it's 90 welfare. degrees and, and you see a, a dog closing the a car with the windows closed, that's an immediate risk. I know I have friends who will, if they see that, they will get on the phone with the police. Um, they're not going to wait and try and find right. someone else. So the, the immediacy really matters as well. Okay. Yeah, I believe we do have the state animal welfare hotline on our brochure for helping pets. So, yeah. I mean... Folks can always just start there, and they'll they'll put them in the right direction. Yeah, they're pretty too. good because they they're in contact with the animal mm-hmm. control people, mm-hmm. and that's part of the network. Mm-hmm. So that's that's important. Uh, have you dealt with hoarding? Hoarding is a kind of abuse, uh, from what I understand. Uh, I've had in my time as a veterinarian several uh, clients who are hoarders, and it's uh, really difficult. It's horrible for the animals. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's overcrowding. Um, cats are the most common of the hoarders and the house is just is one big litter mm-hmm. and they're not fed and they are sick and these people either um, you know they have these self-important control issues sometimes they kind of fall into it um, they have a couple cats and then they start reproducing and then all of a sudden they have a million cats that's still no excuse mm-hmm. but uh, have you had hoarding involved with your family with some of these calls right um not as much i think it's very common um for the animals for there to be a rapid they run through animals quickly animals disappear animals get killed animals Uh. get put to sleep for being aggressive um i think i've there have been a few cases where i i know what hoarding is i know what you mean by that it wasn't really to that level, but it was allowed to become a burden that there were just enough animals, like I said, like five cats and two dogs and a rabbit and whatever, and they're like, I can never leave, you know, where am I going to go with these? But I think um, there are some studies, that I don't have them on me, that suggest that surviving trauma can be linked to hoarding, um, so there might be um, a risk for folks who are potentially recovering from this kind of situation to develop that coping mechanism, but I don't have any expertise in that. I've also heard it could be a form of obsessive compulsive disorder, Mm -hmm. uh, hoarding, but has that played uh, a role, not just a family with a lot of animals, but an actual Mm -hmm. hoarder, has that played any role in some cases you've seen? Honestly, no. I've seen them through the child welfare, but they didn't happen to be cases that really pulled me in. I I just can't say I've experienced much of that. It seems to me like it's more the animals are just disappearing. <laughs> so the quick turnover. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's always very, young animals, always new animals. That's very astute. That's a, that's very good for the people, our listeners, to know that because it's that quick turnover. You know, mm-hmm. How come you got a new dog? Got another cute little puppy. And all of a sudden and it's gone. There's never any adult dogs, yeah. Right, right. That That's something that I think our listeners should be mm-hmm. aware of. I Could we take a couple of minutes to talk about a positive uh, approach that we've been Please. taking. Please. I, I wanted, <laughs> yeah, we're actually, believe it or not, running out of time. And I wanted to talk what were the kinds of things we can, you can do in a positive way. So, so go for it, Dorothy. One of the things that we've been working on is finding ways to foster pets so that when we're working with families that flee their home to escape domestic violence who uh, 
who want their pets to be safe but can't take them to a shelter or can't take them to the new apartment, that we can find people who would will temporarily take those pets in to keep them safe while the family works out what they're going to do next. Um, you know, I think that it's something that people in the community can think about offering to someone in need to say, it's a, even if it's just about the pet, it, it looks like there's a lot of stress in your home and your dog seems a little skittish. Do you need a break? And maybe offer a safe place for the pet to go, at least to, to explore with the person, how can I help you keep that pet safe? Um, did you want to add a little bit? Well, to that? I brought in um, a copy. We give out an insert that can go in our brochures, and it's about how to plan for your pet, whether you're planning to leave or whether you're not planning to leave or whether you've recently left an, an abusive relationship. Because, again, we never say, you have to leave. We're like, okay, so maybe you can't leave right now. You don't feel safe. So how do you keep your pet safe while you're not leaving, too? And um, so I do have some of those. And also vets or shelters or anybody could ask us for those resources for free to put in there in their waiting areas or in their bathroom. Um, So some of them are, if you're staying um, for the time being at least, um, just make sure that you try and keep aside some emergency provisions for your pet in case your abuser withholds money because that can be a tactic. I'm not going to buy. Oh, well, can't have any dog food this week. You know. Um, Like a disaster relief. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's it's something that survivors often do is try and set aside a little bit of cash or a little bit of this that's or that. That's very that's a very good idea. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. And if possible, again, it's not always possible based on their situation, the person they're dealing with, but if they can have the vet records in their name or the dog license in their name or something in their name, it can uh, help them to have some recourse if that time comes when the abusive person takes their dog to the shelter or establish ownership. Yeah, yeah. Or call ownership. Exactly. Um, so then, if if you are planning to leave in the near future, um, you start looking around for where your pets might be able to go. And just like with humans without pets, we usually suggest first. People don't usually want to go to a shelter. They usually have to go pretty far away, maybe leave their kids' school behind or their work behind. So we start with, is there a way that you can stay local? Um, Again, does your abuser respond to court orders so you could get a protection order and stay in the home? Or do you think that's not realistic, they wouldn't obey it and they'd keep bothering you? If so, is there somebody else you can go stay with that... And what would the effect of that be? Would your abuser want to behave themselves in front of that person or not care? Um, and it goes out and out. So um, up to and including going away and staying in a shelter really far away, which is what people usually don't want to do. That's like their last resort. Right. And so with pets, it's the same thing. You know, or is, is there anybody who already takes care of your pets for you? You know, and does the controlling person know where that is and how can we plan for that and just keep making that plan. So that's one thing they can do. Um, Make sure they have access to a list of the animal's medications if they have any so they can have them refilled in a pinch. Good idea. Um, The ownership documents. um, If they can tuck away maybe with a friend or family member some pet care supplies or any of these items. You know, flea stuff. Yep, yep. Um, again, the rabies tag or anything like that that they might want to have. Um, toys, bedding. Um, 
Okay, and if you have left, it goes down to being aware of your pet's personal safety because leaving, as I said, is the most dangerous time. Unfortunately, a very high amount of homicides that are due to domestic violence happen right after leaving. They've lost control. You got it because it's about control. So you have to be mindful about not keeping pets out outdoors and unattended because they could be grabbed. Um, Also. Be mindful of where you walk them and whether this you're is after safe. You've left. Yeah. Okay. Well, it could really be any time, but if you're yeah. expecting if you're expecting an assault, it's just the personal safety stuff. So those are and potentially change your veterinarian as noted here because again they might know where to find you there. Folks who want to find you can be really good good at it. They don't mind stalking you at the post office or and your kid's school. It's worth saying that if your pet is microchipped and you leave with the pet. The abuser can track you through the pet's microchip. Ah, that should be on there. To. Yeah. So that's. I wonder if, it, if they can um, change the information. That, you know, you'd have to, the listeners would have to call the microchip company you're involved with yeah. to see if the information that you give them, because you have to give them all this information mm-hmm. where you live and stuff, if that could be changed or not. That, yeah. That's very important. That might, that's very very good point, Dorothy. I didn't think of that. We think of, we try and think of everything, and we still find out we have missed something. So, yep. <laughs> what kind of other positive things uh, and, and or what's what are you looking at in the future for um, strategies to helping people and pets and abuse? We're looking to collaborate with uh, licensed animal care facilities like vets or boarding clinics or shelters and we've started talking with the ARC to see if we can kind of pilot a program and there's an organization that's been around for actually several decades but I just became aware of them is called Red Rover and they do disaster relief and other kinds of things you're familiar with them yeah so they have a domestic violence branch do they yes awesome and they have a few options then one of them's the safe escape grant and it has really narrow parameters because they're trying to make their money go a long way but if we partner with some of those places I mentioned they have to be licensed real professional animal care facilities then folks who are actually staying in our shelter, not just anywhere, but in our shelter, we can apply for a grant for up to $600 to to board their animals and care for them, get them up to date on records and wow, everything like that. And the ARC is a perfect place to go in this area. That's He's right. the, the director. I had him talk here, and they're fantastic. They've been very supportive. So good, I said good. I'd shout out, please check out their website and see what you can do for them because they're awesome. Yes, <laughs> yes. So there's so that's one of the things you're working on is, is getting yep. like Red Rover and other things to kind of put things in place Yes, that's already there. And all of a sudden when the emergency comes you're all prepared yeah that's always best and that's what all that stuff was for the individual to kind of have a go bag and and to kind of know what they want to do so and if anyone's listening who's part of one of those other organizations if they're on a board or if they work at a vet clinic and they'd like to partner with us on that they can call our helpline uh our information's all over the place so and you're on and ask for leslie okay ask for leslie (laughs) and our website (laughs) That's the next step, domestic violence project. That's yes, if they just search that, they'll get it for sure. As long as they say domestic violence project, because there's a lot of things called next step here and there. Yes, it's our website is nextstepdvproject.org. Um, where 
what are some things to suggest to people that not to do when you're in that situation? Uh, so, okay, you know, don't don't do this, don't do that, and you know, if pets are involved, that's fine too. But just generally, don't do what somebody says to do without thinking carefully about it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Honestly, because the, it's really hard to find a don't do this because. Um, I mean, I'm sure there are some. I personally think it's very dangerous to just go out and buy a firearm or something because that can just put you at more risk if you don't really. I just, that scares me. So don't listen to advice. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Seriously. I mean, friends, I honest, everyone's got their own yeah. ideas. Oh, you just, you got to leave them. You got to walk out, which yeah. is dangerous because the kids and the, the pets. And even folks who've also escaped a violent relationship, even what they did might not work for this person because they're in a different relationship. So we like to brainstorm with people and safety plan without, we do lots of training. We call it don't fix or don't give advice. We're really trying not to assert ourselves into the situation, but to help them find what they think will work and the flip side of that is as someone trying to be helpful a don't is don't tell someone what to do and don't assume you know everything about what's going on people are the experts on their own lives and you can help draw out solutions most people know with enough resources what to do to be safe and if we go in and tell them what to do if we're wrong we could be contributing to their lack of safety so so don't um so that don't tell people, don't tell other people isn't necessarily a, keeping a secret is not? No, is, that is certainly not what I mean. Okay. I mean, just don't tell people, you, as, as Leslie said, you, you have to leave, you have to get out of there, you have to call the police, you have to do this, because some of those might be good solutions in certain circumstances, but you don't know the whole picture, and that person does. So what you can do to be helpful is to offer resources, say, you know, call your local domestic violence project. Um, they they can probably help you think this through. Do you need to use my phone because well yours said. is being checked? So. Yes, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Okay, that's that's very good advice. Very good advice. I think we're, we're almost uh, running out of time, and I want to thank Dorothy and uh, Leslie for coming down here to talk about abuse. I'm hoping our, our listeners uh, got something out of this. So this is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. And remember, enjoy your pet, and don't forget to give them a hug.